Before we begin, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Amazon Music for partnering with me on this episode of Chasing Creativity, but more on this later. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Chasing Creativity. This is Kiran Manral and today I have with me the very very wonderful Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni, an author I admire immensely whose books I've enjoyed over the years and she's here to talk to us about her creative process, how she gets her wonderful characters into place and yes, her latest book An Uncommon Love which is the story of Sudha and Narayan Murthy, her first non-fiction ever. Welcome to Chasing Creativity, Chitra. Thank you, Kiran. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, Chitra, I'm so fascinated. I must be very honest because you're one of the few writers, Chitra, who has unhesitatingly jumped genres. You've written across everything possible, emotion, emotional drama, fantasy, historical fiction, mythology, and now nonfiction, real life memoir. How do you do it? (laughs) You know, I don't have an easy answer for that. Um, Ideas for books just come to me. It's like they come from, you know, some higher source. And I just go along. I'm just the instrument. So the idea will come and then it will become a very strong idea. It'll kind of flash in my head until I can't think of anything else. And then I'm like, okay, this is going to be the next book. This book I have to write now. And then I start the research. And then I do all of the other things. So you would say the idea chooses you rather than you choose the idea? Very That's much. That's how it happens. Very much. When you began, Chitra, I mean, you studied literature. You went to the US. You uh, did your master's. You did your all your work. And you uh, you studied Christopher Marlowe, I believe. That was your <laughs> primary uh, subject of your thesis. And did you at that point think you were going to be a writer? Were you very clear that I'm going to be an academic and and writing happened to you? How did that come about? Yeah, I was very certain that I was going to teach. I was going to teach English. I was not writing creatively, maybe, you know, a poem here and a poem there. Uh, But no, I did not study creative writing. Right now I teach creative writing. So Mm -hmm. all my graduate students, they know that they want to be writers. That's what they're focusing on their academic life 100% on. But I didn't. I didn't even know that that was in my future. So I was just going along being an academic. And then one day, again, it like hit me. And I, I said to myself, all this that I'm studying about, you know, Elizabethan literature, Christopher Marlowe, whatnot, it doesn't have anything to do with my reality as a woman in the 20th century, the 21st century. It doesn't have anything to do with me being an immigrant and coming from India. Those are important things in my life. And I have to get back to that. I can't have my creative life be divorced from that which is my reality. And it was like a switch went off in my head. I continued teaching, but I started writing very seriously. And the first, I, you mentioned it just now, you were doing writing poems here and there, and uh, then you began writing seriously. So, and of course, immigrant stories, you wanted to put those stories out there. So was there something specific that made you pick up the, your very first book 
pick up the theme of that, any incident, any anecdote, anything that happened that sort of triggered that entire process towards writing? Yeah, I think there was definitely two two things that happened. <clears throat> one was more personal, one was more social, but still very much uh, something that touched my heart. And the first part thing was that my grandfather in India passed away. And I'd been very close to him. And he had been the big storyteller in my life. He had he was the one who told me the stories of the Ramayana, Mahabharat, Bengali folk tales. He always gave me books as gifts. He never gave me anything else except books as gifts. So my whole library really was thanks to my grandfather. And so when he passed away, you know, it was I was in the U.S. He was in India. I couldn't go over for his funeral. I was still a finishing up graduate school. And it really struck me that, wow, I have lost someone very important in my life. And I felt I had to write about it. And so, you know, I started writing about my grandfather. I wrote some poems and I thought about him. And then I started thinking about the stories that had been so important to him. And I wanted to bring those stories back into my life. So that was one impetus towards writing and writing about India and writing about being an immigrant. The other thing was right around that time, I had started doing social work in the field of domestic violence. And I came across several uh, cases of Indian women who were in situations of domestic violence. And so I became very aware of their reality and how, they, how cut off they were, how isolated they felt. Here they were in a country where all, mostly all of their near and dear ones were halfway across the world and could not help them. And here they were, you know, pretty much at the mercy of their abuser. And they would manage to get away from them and come to us and then we would try to help them. But it was a terrible situation. It was emotionally very traumatic for them. And as I worked more and more with them, I thought, I have to tell this story also. People don't know the stories of these women. People don't know the struggles that immigrant women from India and, of course, from other places, but I know India, so that's what I was writing about. People don't know these stories. It's very important for these voices to be heard. So those were the dual impulses that really pushed me into writing and got me very focused. And both of my first books, Arranged Marriage and Mistress of Spices, deal with both of these realities. Lovely. Uh, I love Mistress of Spices. I really did. I have noticed, Chitra, your books, of course, the female protagonists are incredible. They have, you know, it's, of course, apart from the mythological ones and somebody like a Sudha Murthy and Rani Jindan, they are everyday women in situations where they have to, I would say, confront their situation, confront their lives, and through the grace with which they navigate their lives is what the story goes forward. How do you build your protagonist? How does does the protagonist also come to you like the way the story comes? Or do you sort of uh, sit about constructing this person whom you're going to write about? It's a little bit of both, Kiran. So the protagonist comes to me. For example, when I was, you know, before I wrote The Last Queen about Maharani Jinda, uh, I did not even know about her. I have to confess, because she is not in our history books, right? I did not know about her. She has been erased, or she was erased by history. I hope I've done a little bit to bring her to public attention. But she was an amazing woman. But she was also from a very humble background. She was also flawed 
as in she was very courageous, but also very headstrong. Uh, she, she did what she wanted. She annoyed uh, her counselors and some of them turned against her. So, you know, she was a regular complex woman and she is the kind of person I like to write about. We can be inspired by them, but they're not perfect because this is just my thing. The perfect woman doesn't exist. The perfect man also <laughs> doesn't exist. Our beauty is in our flawed humanity. And that's what I try to show through my books. And it's the same with uh, Sudha Murthy. She's, I admire her. She's wonderful. But, you know, she has her moments. And she has been so kind and frank in this book that I've written that she's told me about those things. Moments when she got upset. Moments when she cried. Moments when, you know, she did something that she regretted later. That's what makes us human. I got to put those in my books. It's also dramatic. <laughs> of course, it all adds to the drama. After having written fiction for so long, the switch to nonfiction and that too with, uh, you know, subjects who are still living and to garner the material from them. How difficult was it? It was very difficult. And really, I did not come up with the idea of this book myself, you know, Talk about the universe giving me something. Juggernaut books, Chiki Sarkar, she called me at home and she said to me, I have your next book idea and I would love for you to write this book. And she said, it's going to be the life story of these two amazing people who have lived very interesting lives. And I knew Sudhaji, I knew Murtiji because I had gone to college with Sudhaji's younger brother in, in the U.S. So I'd met them before. But I said, look, I'm a fiction writer. I don't know how to write nonfiction. And Chiki said, no, 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 you can do it. They did not agree to other people, but I talked to them about you, and they are agreeing that they will talk to you, and they talk to you openly. So, you know, that was, I was very honored and touched. And then I, but I started thinking, well, how, can I use my fiction writing skills to write a nonfiction book? And again, as with all of my other books, I had to focus on character. I had to focus on what was complex about them, what was human about them, what were those moments that people would remember because they are, you know, they can imagine those scenes. So I thought of their lives as a series of scenes, almost cinematically. Although, you know, because it's written medium, I could go into thoughts and complexities and I could analyze a little bit and I could ask the reader to think in certain ways. But that's what I used. I used the same kinds of techniques that I'd used in Palace of Illusions, actually writing the two epics, Palace of Illusions and Forest of Enchantments, really helped me with this because there also I was handed the story. Right. And I didn't I wasn't interested in changing the main lines of the Ramayana or the Mahabharata. That was not my project. My project was to focus on the female characters, Sita and Draupadi. And here also they handed me the story of their life. They told me what had happened. Of course, I asked questions and we went deeper. You know, I would dig into incidents further. I talk about well, how were you feeling? What was in your mind, etc., etc. You know, I, I did a, we did a lot of uh, soul searching as <laughs> I was talking to them. 
But the story was handed to me. I was not going to change the story. So it was character revelation. That's what I got interested in, focusing on dramatic moments that allowed us to understand these characters and to see their humanity, to feel our common humanity. You know, when they're in love or when they're in distress or when they're so overwhelmed that Murti doesn't get to see his children for sometimes months, you know? So I wanted to focus on those moments. So a kind of a fictional technique for a non-fictional subject. I did feel while reading this, uh, Chitra, your books have always focused on the female protagonist. Even in this book, even though it's the romance of both of them, Narayan Murthy and Sudha Murthy, I feel Sudhaji gets... Was it deliberate or, was, or did it just happen? I think it just happened. But, you know, maybe it's just because I'm a little more in sync with the woman's way of thinking. So, you know, I, I think that happened kind of naturally. And also, you know, she is the... I'm always interested in the story behind the story. Like Mr. Murthy's story also has its private moments, I will say. He told me a lot of things in this in this book that he really hadn't talked about because, you know, like many men, talking about emotions was difficult for him. And I really appreciated and commended him for doing that, for talking about really some childhood traumas and things like that. But the woman's story is often just not appreciated enough, I think, still in our world. And so I wanted to focus especially on Sudhaji, because she's the one in some ways. Yes, Murtiji also gave up a lot, but Sudhaji, I felt, was the one who gave up even more. <clears throat> she gave up her career at various points. She gave up Infosys. You know, she gave up the company of her husband for the good of Infosys. And she's the one who had to literally be left holding the baby. <laughs> yes. And how does that feel? How does one handle? What is a graceful way of handling this challenge. I think her life shows us that. When you uh, wrote uh, the story of The Last Queen and then you went on to write Independence, which is a beautiful book, really exquisite book, was there some sort of fascination you had with the independence movement that led you to write these two books at around the same time, you know, back to back almost? Yes, because they're kind of like at two ends of the spectrum, as it were. Maharani Jindal, she fights so hard against the British, but it's just a time when the British are too strong. India is just too divided. Kingdoms just do not know how to come together against an outside power. There's so much infighting even within a kingdom, and Maharani Jindal becomes the victim of all of that. She has courage. She has, what can I say? She has, she's one-pointed. She has courage. She loves her country and she loves her son and she's willing to give her life for that. But the people around her are not. The British managed to bribe them, get them over on their side, get them to become traitors to their own country. So it was a very sad moment in Indian history. And I did not want to end there. So I wanted to follow mm -hmm. the arc to the conclusion of the arc where the British are thrown out of India and India finally becomes free. So, you know, just for me, it was a catharsis to move from that moment to this moment. And again, to focus on some very, three very ordinary women and show how 
Sometimes, because of the crucible of history that we find ourselves in, even the most common person learns to become extraordinary. You know, and in some ways, that is the story of the life of the Murtis also. When they were young, yes, they were both very smart. But beyond that, you know, they were living very ordinary lives. They were dating, going to the movies, <laughs> doing fun things. But, you know, they had a dream and they went after it. And in the crucible of that dream, their characters were forged and became something different and special. Lovely. It is so interesting. I also wonder when you've written The Palace of Illusions and Forest of Enchantment, sorry, you've taken two very well-known characters from Indian mythology. We know, everyone knows about them. The challenge is to build these characters and to present them in new light from a feminist perspective, from a contemporary perspective. Also to reimagine their thoughts, their moods, their situations and how they would have reacted because their stories have always been told by men so far. So what were, what was your process like while doing that? Because, I mean, reference material doesn't tell us about these things. You know, the process is really that of the imagination, right? So I had to visualize Sita, for example, you know, in Valmiki's ashram. That's where the book starts. Her children are somewhat grown and they're going to go to the court of Ram. And Valmiki has written the Ramayana, which they're going to sing. And she looks at this Ramayana and she's like, oh, you did not get my story right. So I had to imagine <laughs> that moment. And so, and then he's like, okay, Mother Sita, you write your own story. And that's that is the concept of the book, then Sita writes her own story. So I had to imagine the character. For me, in writing, character is always central. What is the character feeling? I have to visually imagine how is Sita sitting down to write this book, The Forest of Enchantments? How is Draupadi feeling when she is in the Kaurav Sabha and Dushasan is trying to disrobe her? I have to imagine it. And not just from the outside, as other wonderful but male writers have done, the male gaze is always different from the women woman's gaze. And I have to gaze at the character with my woman's gaze and understand her from the inside. And only then can I write that scene. So that is always my process. And uh, do you, of course, with the Sita's story, with Draupadi's story, the, as you said, the narratives are given to you, they are pre-handed and you have to work with that. But when you're writing your stories like Independence, Mistress of Spices, how do you do it? Do you outline? Are you a plotter? Are you a panster? Do you start with the character, as you mentioned, and then let them go on their own trip? How does it work for you? Okay, so I have to start with the character and I have to imagine that first scene. Right. When I imagine that first scene, I haven't really thought beyond it too much because I okay. have to get comfortable with the character. You know, I have to get comfortable with the character's voice and way of thinking, way of moving, everything. I ha it, I'm very visual. I have to see the character. But then I start outlining and I'm a yes, I'm an avid outliner. And I always tell my students, please outline as much as you can. 
don't feel constrained by the outline. You can always change the outline. Nobody is going to come and say to you later, oh, this was your outline and look how you went in another direction. But the outline gives me, I don't know, it gives me structure. I don't have to reimagine the progress of the novel at every moment. I kind of know where it's going and then I'm surprised also. <clears throat> so I at least outline like the next few chapters and then again the next few chapters. And that's how I always write. So it isn't the full entire outline of the entire novel. You go like few chapters at a time and then it's like maybe driving down the path in a foggy road and having a bit of light clear ahead of you and then going on. That's the way it works for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then suddenly, sometimes I will get an idea and I'll change the outline or I'll go back and change. things. I do a fair amount of rewriting. And has it ever happened to you, Chitra, that you have imagined the character in a certain way and that she will behave in a certain way? These will be her typical responses. And has the character gone on to shock you and done things that you thought were absolutely... <laughs> My characters are very disobedient. They often do things that I don't expect. And even in the novel Independence, which is about these three sisters, I was really yeah. surprised. I knew the arc of the youngest sister pretty much, you know, because she's very focused. She has a goal. Yes, things don't go the way that she would have liked them to go. But that was very true at that uh, time in the 1940s. Everything was turning upside down. People were dying. You know, just many terrible things were happening. People, therefore, they might have had dreams, but, you know, they had to quickly change or modify those dreams. But at least with the third sister, the youngest sister, Priya, I knew what was her dream. But the older sisters, Deepa and Jamini, I had somewhat of an idea, but I did not know how their stories would pan out. And I would just do that. I'd just write a little bit and try to understand the character. And then I would be like, okay, what would this character do under these historical circumstances? And then I'd like write some more. So I had to really, with those two sisters, discover what they're going to do. And even towards the end, when there is a, you know, a pretty dramatic rescue scene, I did not know how it would turn out. I had to kind of write through it to figure out how it would turn out. That's fascinating. That's fascinating, writing through it and figuring it out. What is your working day like? How long are at your, you teach? So your day, major part of your day probably is at the university. How much time do you manage to take out to write and uh, just uh, get with your work, your writing work? Well, one of the things, because now I've taught at the University of Houston for a long time and I've become more senior faculty. So I can request certain things. And what I request is that my working days would be like two working days. And I spend the whole day up to night in, at the university. And those are my working, okay. my teaching days. And okay. the other three days of the week are my writing days. So on those days, I only write. And on my teaching days, I only teach. And then extra teaching, prep and all that, I, I'll do it on the weekend. So, you know, my life was uh, very focused on my teaching and my writing. I don't do many other things, you know, just basic family things and like we go to the gym and things like that. But I'm not like traveling for fun. I'm not like partying all the time. And I 
you know, for me, that works. That's not everybody's uh, life. But I do tell my students that if you want to seriously be a writer, you have to give time to your art. You have to give time and energy, not just the leftover at the end of the day. You got to give it, you know, your focused time and energy. You got to give it the best. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that because I see, and I'm sure you do too, many people who wish to be writers, but the writing is, as you said, you know, energy that's left at the end of the day or they are waiting for the muse to strike. It doesn't work like that. Would you, what would you see about this thing that, you know, I've got a writer's blog, I'm waiting for the muse to strike. Does it work that way at all? No, no, I, it's never worked that way for me. The muse does strike, but we have to be ready for that, right? So we have to have a lot of time when we are not doing other things, but maybe we are thinking about a next project. We're just kind of waiting to see what idea might come up. So that it's like, you know, someone said this once very beautifully. He said, you cannot make lightning strike you, but you can go to the place where you know lightning strikes and you can wait over there. And that's kind of, so I tell my students, you have to sit at your writing desk. Maybe you don't have an idea, but you still sit there for an hour and you see what comes up. And you'll be surprised when you are not, when we are not distracted, you know, the creative urge is able to rise up in us. When I'm distracted with a hundred things, that creative urge is trying to come out, but I'm not looking. I'm not looking there. You're not paying attention. That's right. Also, the discipline of writing, just I'd really like you to talk to us about what discipline in writing entails, because you're you're such a prolific writer and there definitely is hard discipline that has gone into this. And do you sort of tell yourself that these are the hours I'm going to put at the desk? This is what I'm going to do. How does your discipline come into play when you're producing your work? Yeah, I just happen to be a very, you know, details oriented person. So in the beginning, in the morning, every day, I will get up and I'll create my routine for the day and I will put in my writing time okay and then I'll put in around it the other things this is on my writing days the other things that need to be done where cooking has to be done I'm going to go to the gym I have to make phone calls whatever but first I block out my writing time and that really helps me so you know that is something I would recommend for anyone who wants to seriously write is block that time off first and block it off when at a time when you're not tired because you know sometimes I can't do it I get to my writing only at the end of the day and I want to write but I'm just too tired and the brain is not working in the best possible way and I'm putting down words but I know they're not good I know I'll have to throw those away so I can at least help myself by you know giving writing the best time of my day Another thing I've heard you mention in our conversation is going to the gym. And I think a lot of people don't understand how terrible writing is as a profession for the body and for the back, especially. So I know that Murakami wrote an entire book about it. But tell us more about this and how important fitness is for writers. I don't think people understand that we really, it is a physically taxing profession, even though it looks like we're just sitting at the desk. Oh, yeah. 
I remember in between, I developed terrible backache and I could not even sit to write. It was really difficult. And then uh, we have one of those reclining chairs. So I had to recline in the chair when I was writing Independence because halfway through Independence, all of a sudden, you know, I understood big things. So big parts of the novel clicked into place. So I was writing like all day. I was, it was summertime. I didn't have teachings. I was writing all day. But I developed this terrible backache. And so, you know, I couldn't sit. I was literally in pain. I was taking ibuprofen. <laughs> and then I said, okay, but I have a deadline. I do. And I'm excited to finish this novel. So I wrote most of the novel in my recliner. So I'm very aware that, you know, we have to, writing is a profession like many professions where you have to be fit, you have to be in good shape. And the other thing I love about going to the gym is a lot of times on the gym, I'm on like the treadmill or I'm on the elliptical. And those repetitive movements, they don't require much conscious thought. But when I'm doing that, you know, the mind is free to like imagine things and wander. And, you know, sometimes I'll just be exercising, but my eyes will be closed. And I'm really thinking about my novel. Not that I went to the gym saying, I'm going to now think about my novel, but that kind of rhythmic activity somehow stimulates my imagination and I can begin to see, you know, scenes in my head. So I recommend going to the gym to everyone. Lovely. So I, I do th- remember something that Agatha Christie said that the best time to think about plot is when you're doing the dishes. So is it something like that when your body yes. is occupied but your mind is free? And yes, yes. And sometimes, and I'd recommend this for people who can't or don't want to go to the gym, long walks. Long walks have always helped me. Long walks by myself. I'm not really consciously thinking about the book. I'm just walking to clear my head. But something happens, you know, that repetitive activity and, you know, you're at peace, you're not disturbed by anyone. I don't know. I think we have a lot of creativity in us. We just have to give it opportunity to come up, you know, regularly. We have to give it regular opportunity. to. That's so lovely. And that's something I think we could all pay heed to, whether we're writers or not. Chitra, would you like to tell people listening in where all you'd be uh, to promote uh, an uncommon love in India if they'd like to meet with you? Yes, I'm very excited about my book tour, which is coming up. My first event will be on the 26th of January in Chennai. And I will be speaking at the Hindu Literature Festival. It's called Lit for Life. So if people will just go to their site and they haven't given me the time yet, but Sometime at some point on the 26th, I'll be doing that event. Then I'm going to Jaipur, where this will be lots of fun because Sudhamurthy will also come to Jaipur and we'll kind of launch the book together over there. And that will be on February 4th. And then from there, I will go to Delhi. And probably on the 7th, I'm going to do an event in Delhi. 6th and 7th, I'm going to do a couple of events. I know one is being planned by Kunzum Bookstore. So if people go on that site, they can find out. And the other one is still being planned. And then the final event will be a launch with both of the Murthys, Mr. Murthy and Sudhaji. And that will be in Bangalore. 
and that will probably be on the 10th of February. I'm pretty sure that's the 10th of February. I'll put all of this on my social media, on my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, I would love, love, love for all our listeners who are in these cities to come and join me and say hello. Fabulous. And final question, what are you working on next? <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, until recently, we were doing finishing touches on an uncommon love. But now I have started working on a fantasy novel. So that is my Oh, fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. And you chump genres yet again. Wonderful. It's nice. <laughs> yes, yes. My, I have two sons. They are very excited. They were not so much into, you know, all these novels about, you know, women's emotions and growth and all that. But they're on board with the fantasy novel. They're like, we're going to read each chapter as you write it. Lovely, lovely. I'm looking forward to reading that one too. I can't uh, begin to, you know, you start imagining now what would Chitra write in fantasy? I, I'm a great uh, lover of fantasy. From the time I read Lord of the Rings, I have been loving fantasy. So as always, I want to put an Indian spin to it and go back into our mythologies and our folk tales and also our fairy tales. You know, there's a lot of wonderful fantasy. So I want to draw on those. Looking forward to it, Chitra. Thanks so much for taking time out for this. And I hope to meet you. Of course. Thank you, Kiran. And I think I'll see you in Chennai. So looking forward to that. Oh, that'll be lovely. And this is a wrap on this episode of Chasing Creativity. This was Kiran Manral chatting with Chitra Banerjee Devakruni on her latest book, An Uncommon Love, on her writing process and what's coming up next, a fantasy from her. So do catch this episode wherever you get your audio content from. Thanks, Chitra. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Chasing Creativity. I wanted to say thank you to Amazon Music once again for partnering with me on this episode of this podcast.